Hello everyone, this is Will from China, and welcome to this exciting episode of The Missing Piece. Mitch Blatt is an international journalist, a columnist, and a translator based in East Asia. He covers foreign affairs, travel, and culture for outlets like the National Interests, Roads and Kingdoms, and China.org.cn. In addition, he offers translation and proofreading services to the clients. And right now, Mitch is based in South Korea and join our show. Mitch, welcome back to my show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, Mitch, again, I know your time is very limited and there's so much I want to discuss with you. And first of all, domestically speaking, as American, Bill and Melinda Gates announced their separation on Twitter yesterday after 27 years of marriage. Finally, another rich couple decided to part ways. And right after Jeff Bezos, uh, the founder, the CEO of Amazon, and uh, of course, he divorced his wife a long time ago. So Mitch, your thoughts on the separation for uh, Bill and Melinda Gates? <laughs> oh gosh, I didn't think I was going to have this question. I, mean, <laughs> I, I don't know anything about them, but I do find it funny how will it affect the vaccine distribution? Because, you know, some American anti-vaxxers have some kind of conspiracy theory that the Gateses are behind the vaccine. This could disrupt things, I guess. Well, I know, Mitch, you were not prepared for this question because I just thought it's so interesting that when we address Bill um, and Melinda Gates, of course, we thought about their Gates Foundation and also the uh, humanitarian works that they did globally, and you're right. And um, in terms of uh, promoting and also developing the vaccination programs, now just for Americans, but also for international uh, uh, countries, and they are actually one of the major advocates. And I know that they work closely with Warren Buffet and in terms of really battling against the pandemic. But again, yesterday morning when I woke up, it was very surprising to see after 27 years of marriage and Bill and Melinda Gates decided to, well, you know what, let's not be a couple anymore. And I think most of the people, I mean, as you and I, we know, we were not interested about their separation. We were interested about their, um, the uh, what do you call the assets or how are they going to divide the finance so that would be very interesting. Now, Mitch, let's get to the second question. Domestically speaking, Caitlyn Jenner joined the race for governor in California. And we know that so far, the current uh, governor, um, Gavin Newsom, uh, faced major obstacles. And not just from his own party, but also uh, uh, from the uh, uh, constituents. But Mitch, I don't want to talk about Gavin Newsom. I want to talk about Caitlyn Jenner. You as American, you as an international journalist, why do you think it's so important for Caitlyn Jenner to join the race at this moment? And also, you know the story about Caitlyn Jenner as an um, international journalist. How likely that she's going to um, gain the votes or how likely she's going to build her credibility at this moment? Uh, well, running in California, of course, California is the land of Hollywood, and it used to have uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger as their governor, 
so it's not entirely surprising that a celebrity would run, for, and, and of course Donald Trump used to be president of the whole country, so it's not surprising anywhere in America that a celebrity would run for office. But I don't, I think Caitlyn Jenner faces a tough challenge uh, both to win the support of the Republican Party with whom she is running as a member of the Republican Party and also to win the support of people in the whole state. I mean, if you're running as a Republican in California, California is a very democratic state. And I think that she lacks the credibility as a political force. And she also... Um, holds some views that are controversial in terms of the gender uh both uh, she both oppose uh, is transgender but she opposes uh certain transgender rights that the democratic party supports so it creates a lot of contradictions well, yeah, Mitch, I agree with you, and we know the story of Caitlyn Jenner before, and of course, that was um, way before Donald Trump was the president, and that was during the Obama era. But again, you know, um, at this moment, and still America is battling with the COVID-19 and battling with this racial tension, and also, of course, that everyone is arguing or debating about the topic called equality. You know, we want equality, and we want human rights, and we want respect. It seems like people just keep on uh, um, adding up the things to the list. But again, it's so unique that Kalen Jenner jumped in the race. And again, he's a celebrity celebrity today. And he's a well-known figure in the LGBTQ community. And, and also on top of that, that he's hoping that Democrats is going to back her up. And it's going to support her. And if, hypothetically, if she won the race... She was actually going to be the first the transgender uh, a person to be the governor, so which would be another groundbreaking news. But anyway, I'm here not to talk about um, Bill Gates' uh, foundation. I'm not talking about Kaylin Jenner, but let's talk about what actually mo matters the most to you and me. Mitch, you travel extensively in East Asia, and also, of course, you are very knowledgeable about the relationship. Um, happening in Southeast Asia. Let's talk about this. India is actually the second largest nation actually facing the crisis of COVID-19 today. And if I'm not mistaken, the number of cases, they're actually jumped to about 400,000 per day and people in India are suffering greatly. Now, Mitch, before talking to you, I had the opportunity to talk to a local journalist, and she's based in Kashmir. And she shared with me that because of ignorance of the Indian government and also the mishandling of Miranda Modi, the cases were actually very shocking. But my question to you is, COVID-19 is still uh, one of the major obstacles for America. But from the news that we can see that America is willing to lend their hand to India. So my question to you, Mitch, is from your perspective, how should we understand or how should we comprehend the relationship between India and America today? Uh, well, in terms, coronavirus is still a problem in the U.S., but it's not as bad as it was at its peak. And the U.S. vaccination program has gotten uh, more, most of the country vaccinated by now. So I think there's, and we have, America has, 
hundreds of millions of vaccines. So I guess they have excess supply. They have enough vaccines to send a few to India. America has always been had a pretty good relationship with India, especially since the time of George W. Bush. Uh, I think America tries to gain uh, relationships with any country it can, particularly in the strategic region, uh, particularly with India being next to China and America views itself as a an adversary of China. So they want to foster relationships with India so that they can try to get India on its side in a potential conflict or a cold war with China. Well, but at this moment, I want to know, think about this. When Donald Trump was the president and India and America seemed um, to grow a lot closer to each other, and um, Donald Trump visited India many times, and he and Miranda Modi had this really, really buddy-buddy relationship. But right now, at this moment, and Joe Biden has not made any foreign visits into um, Asia, and given the condition that COVID-19 is still, again, uh, it's much more severe uh, in Southeast Asia. But not too long ago, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, that he actually made the first uh, a foreign trip to uh, Southeast Asia, and he met a lot more um, ahead of the states and a lot more um, leaders. But again, do you think that when India and America grow a bit closer, that poses or that can be translated as a negative message for countries like China? So in other words, we know that China and India always have this hot and cold relationship. So does that so does that partnership pose as a negative uh, um, impact to China or China should pay attention to India or China should actually um, continue to build or strengthen relationship with India at this moment? Well, if uh, the U.S. or any country having a good relationship with India doesn't inherently mean, uh, shouldn't mean that there that uh, there is going to be a conflict between China and India, but it does mean that, uh, that the U.S. is putting investment here. And like you said, China can try to put investment here too. I mean, it doesn't hurt to try to maintain a good relationship with India, but of course, China and India have different national interests and different territorial disputes. So it's difficult for China, but it's something that's worth trying. Well, yeah, Mitch, you're right. Well, I mean, again, right now, China is on the rise. And of course, that COVID-19 that China set a good example um, to the world, that in terms of the vaccination programs, again, as a national uh, as a Chinese national, and I can testify uh, in front of everyone that I received the vaccination program uh, uh, or I was vaccinated twice. And um, I believe this program is going to roll out wider and wider. And it is very much effective among the Chinese citizens. And also, meanwhile, China also sent more vaccination programs to countries in Southeast Asia, not just to India. But also in Pakistan, in Indonesia, again, do you think that, um, again, China is trying to strengthen the relationship with other countries in Southeast Asia, and that could bring negative effects to America? And of course, um, this morning, I just watched the interview um, on the 60 Minutes that um, 
Tony Blinken's that he said China's rise or China's uh, uh, growing can be a threat to the world. Is it really that way? I mean, how how much threat are we referring to at this moment from your perspective? Well, there's the theory that when another great power rises, when there's already a great power, and that great power has different interests than the existing great power, and uh, how are they going to try to assert their interests? There's a, I think it's called the... And then the other great power, which already exists, views it as a threat that's called the Thucydides trap where both country one country views the other as a threat the other country needs to start building up its military to protect itself and then it becomes a mutually accelerating situation but there are certainly some places uh parts of the world such as taiwan uh and all where there is the potential for a conflict because uh, China views Taiwan as part of its sovereign borders, and Thai, the Taiwanese government views itself as a sovereign nation, and the U.S. takes Taiwan's side on that, or even on other issues where just China and the U.S. have different views about trade uh, policy, which could lead to conflicts, even if not war, conflicts of a political level. Um, and it's, I think that both that the world and the two countries can manage their conflicts. I think it would be best to avoid a war, but it's becoming, uh, it all depends on how hard both countries work to find a peaceful solution mm. to avoid a war. Well, Mitch, since you mentioned the, uh, the, the region called Taiwan, now that's actually leads to my next question is, during numerous occasions, and uh, of course, not just, not only that facing China, but also uh, uh, to the world, that America today, it's so critical about the treatment from mainland China to the region of Taiwan. Now, I don't want to get into the complicated arguments, and, I, and I'm sure you know uh, um, all the details as well, but there's one thing I'm really interested to find out is, Mitch, why is America today so interested, I quote, protecting Taiwan. What is America trying to accomplish? Because to me, and also to a lot more experts, domestically speaking, that the the um the disputes were uh, a disagreement between China and Taiwan supposed to be a domestic case, not an international um, hot debate, or not an in international interest. But why is America so critical and also just so resistant towards China in terms of dealing with Taiwan at this moment? What is America trying to accomplish? Or the better question is, what is America trying to demonstrate to the world today? Uh, well, uh, there's, the, uh, there's the ideological reason and the national interest reason. In terms of ideology, the U.S. Supports, uh, views itself as supporting democracy, and the U.S. opposes communism. Uh, back going back to the Chinese Civil War, the U.S. supported the Kuomintang and opposed the communists, and then and so ever since then, the U.S. has supported the Taiwan the uh, Taiwanese government in the form of the Kuomintang or post. Then Taiwan became a democracy and held democratic elections in 1992, 
And so the U.S. supported the democratic government in control of Taiwan. So that so the China and Taiwan have two different uh, systems of government, and the uh, the U.S. wants to protect the people's sovereignty in Taiwan to choose their own government rather than having them be controlled by a government by a political party which they don't support which is what would happen if the chinese uh if communist party was to control taiwan that's number one number two in terms of national interest uh well there's a, I, america has a lot of islands out there like guam and such but guam is a lot further from china and america has military in japan and korea now if there uh, in order to have some kind of hegemony over uh asia it helps to have control of the island chain so if china was able to uh, reassert control over taiwan uh, and have military forces on taiwan that would really help uh, china have more control over the region it would make it more difficult for the u.s in the event of a potential war so it's also there's both the number one the case of supporting democracy and number two the case of preventing china from gaining a military foothold in taiwan well mitch i'm very glad that you mentioned the word democracy because this is a very sensitive and also of course it's one of the buzzwords that we are using today now you know it's kind of ironic that we always say America is the example of modern democracy or democracy supposed to be uh, um, honored or appreciated as the Western world runs today. But if you look at the domestic uh, issues and the cases in America, people have written books and articles and experts share their insights on how the democracy in America is actually deteriorating or is almost diminishing today. And again, I'm not here to justify or to agree with any of them or argue with any of them. But I want to say is, do you think that America should continue to run on this bring democracy to the world train that bring the message to the countries, uh, to, Ty uh, to China and the regions of Taiwan, any anywhere else? So again, how should America continue to build the credibility on this topic of democracy so that rest of the world are still interested in following the footstep of america so you mentioned how democracy is deteriorating in america there were riots at the capitol there has been a lot of uh, there's been two presidents recently donald trump and george w bush who didn't even win a majority of the vote all of these are problems but uh uh, I would actually look to other other countries have better democracy than America. I mean, uh, other countries and other systems. Uh, I mean, even Taiwan's system is more democratic probably than America's system. But uh, that doesn't uh, diminish the argument for democracy. Now, the, the second thing you mentioned is how can America make itself uh, really... How can America actually represent the ideals of democracy and have more credibility in promoting democracy? Well, we need to do a better job of 
representing democracy at home. We need to make a more democratic system. We need to make some kinds of reforms to make it easier for all Americans to vote. Right now, the Republican Party in many states is putting a lot of restrictions on voting, uh, trying to block people from being able to vote by mail, trying to make decrease the hours that polling stations are open. And many of these restrictions are aimed at making it harder for African Americans to vote because they usually vote for the Democratic Party. So anyway, so long story short, in order to fix the problems with them, in order to increase America's uh, democratic credibility in the world, we need to fix our problems at home. Mm. Well, Mitch, let's get to the next part. I want to talk about what really hit the news headline uh, in the past 48 hours, which is the argument or which is the conflict between China and the Philippines. Now, before we get to that, I want to read something to you. This is directly from one of the popular uh, um, online magazine called The Diplomat, uh, which I, I'm sure that you are uh, you have heard of as well. Now, the title is called Philippines Protests, quote, blocking of its patrol ship by China. Now, the article basically started as... Uh, if I'm not mistaken, right here it says the defense chief of the Philippines actually asking a question is, what are you doing to our friendship? And you are like an ugly oath forcing your attentions on a handsome guy who wants to be a friend. I mean, I don't really understand what, <laughs> I mean, why he used that analogy. But anyway, presidentially speaking, Rodriguez Duterte, so far his attitudes to China has been very positive and friendly. But meanwhile, the dispute about South China Sea cannot be ignored. And of course, this is it's another soundbite from the Western world that to, uh, uh, quote, attack China. And this is what we said. While we acknowledge that China's military capability is more advanced than ours, which is the Philippines, this does not prevent us from defending our national interests and our dignity as a people with all that we have. What a powerful message. Now, Mitch, from your perspective, how would you balance the relationship between the Philippines and China today? And what is the Philippines trying to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, deliver? Or what message is trying to send to China at this moment? Well, I find it interesting that you refer to the Philippines statement as a statement from the Western world. <laughs> the, the Philippines used to be a colony of America, and they are still an ally of America. That's right. But I guess in terms of their location, it depends on whether you're talking about uh, their cultural location or their political location. But I think just because... A, an Asian country uh, chooses to have good relations with America, they're still an Asian country. Well, yeah, but Mitch, but again, we know that culturally, there's nothing wrong with a relationship. But politically, um, South China Sea has been one of the critical and one of the irreplaceable arguments among the nations in Southeast Asia, not only the Philippines, but also countries as um, Vietnam and Malaysia and, uh, and, and Cambodia, many, many more are trying to send a message to China to say, hey, listen, what the International Tribunal Court decided, and that was the final decision. But initially, during the Obama era, Duterte did not have a relationship or positive relationship with uh, uh, the U.S. So he was willing 
to overlook the decision from the international court and he was willing to um, put the issue on the back burner and deal uh, deal with China as allies or deal with China as friends. But right now, this message has changed. And we don't know if this message directly from Duterte or only from the um, Defense Department. But this is pretty, pretty much forward. And also, let me read something else to you is the Chinese foreign minister has asked the Philippines to respect what it calls Chinese sovereignty in the disputed water and stop actions complicating the situation and escalating disputes. Again, we don't have to get to the argument. We don't have to talk about South China Sea. But Mitch, the question is very simple is, how would you balance or how would you evaluate the relationship between China and the Philippines today? Well, as you mentioned, they had that territorial dispute and the Philippines actually won in court but didn't press on the issue. But uh, I guess, uh, and I haven't seen all the details, but apparently uh, the Philippines is claiming that there are a lot of Chinese boats inside the area that they claim as their exclusive economic zone. So based, I think, you know, uh, there is going to inherently be some uh, tensions there and President Duterte tried to uh, keep the tensions down for a long time, but the Philippines people are also kind of angry at uh, many grievances they perceive about China, whether it's economic grievances or whether it's their concerns about the territory that both sides claim in the sea. And so um, ultimately, it's gonna, um, uh, Duterte did uh he, you maybe he, well, you could say Duterte did a good job handling it for a few years, but at the same time, you could also say Duterte didn't push his own national interest very much. Maybe Duterte just folded, and maybe they're trying to stand up for themselves now after, after they tried for so long to, uh, to not create a conflict. But how much did it win them? Did it win them control of the islands that they claimed? If it didn't, then maybe they are thinking that they need to change course and become more aggressive now. Exactly. Well, I, 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 I can't agree with you more because I think that on the state level, um, the Chinese president loved to or enjoy having the positive relationship between Manila and Beijing. Because meanwhile, I mean, again, if you look at the history, Japan was actually the countries that... Uh, um, who dominated the world for decades. And America and China, despite the um, the differences, actually fought against Japan on different occasions. So again, they there is a mutual interest in, in history. But fast forward today, Duterte, if I'm not mistaken, pre the pandemic or in the midst of the pandemic chaos, that Duterte actually came out praise Chinese government and to and also um, I don't want to use the word pleading but also just inviting the Chinese government to send the vaccination programs uh, or the vaccine uh, vaccinations uh, uh, to the Philippines so in other words there were some mutual interests and there should be some balanced relationship now Mitch let's get to um, two more questions I know you're fairly busy uh, before letting you go is you are based in South Korea can you quickly give us some updates about the COVID-19 in South Korea and what about the general uh, atmosphere socially in South Korea right now? Well, you know, uh, South Korea has continued to keep coronavirus under control, although the cases did increase in uh, 
December and January, but then they decreased since January, and they've been pretty stable at about 500 new cases a day, which if you compare to many countries in the world, such as America, America has 50,000 cases a day. Um, there is very few restrictions, and the, the epicenter is in Seoul, and there's more restrictions in Seoul, but in the rest of the country, there are very few restrictions. You still find people going to restaurants and bars in big numbers. Uh, baseball games are restricted. Uh, a lot, large, there aren't many like large-scale events, but just in terms of everyday life, socializing and everything, people are going out and doing things. Um, one one problem is uh, the vaccination program has been slow and has encountered some bumps. Currently, there is a shortage of Pfizer vaccines, so the government put a stop on any new Pfizer vaccinations, but they also purchased 40 million new Pfizer vaccines. So I think the vaccine program is going to uh, keep going. Uh, once they get more vaccines, it's going to start moving faster. And Mitch, the last question is, again, um, I just pulled out this article this morning, is seems like there is going to be another election happening pretty soon in South Korea. And um, the current president, Moon Jae-in, is facing some major obstacles where um, the opposition leader criticized Munkin in um, in terms of handling the COVID-19 and the national economy, etc. Now, can you tell us a little bit, as the last question is, what is the general attitude in South Korea today, especially among the younger generations, when they look at the government? Do, does the government have does the government have more credibilities or people are just being ignorant or being, uh, how can I say, um... Nonchalant about this, uh, the uh, um, Ins government. So the opposition party just won the mayor elections in Seoul and Busan, the two biggest cities, which is sometimes viewed as a uh, a bellwether of what might happen in the presidential election. Young people are very angry about housing prices and the economy. Housing prices have always been high in Seoul and the whole country, and they've been continuing to rise uh, during Moon Jae-in's administration. He tried to implement some housing policies to keep prices down, but so far they haven't shown any effects. Uh, and I think, and in Korea, presidents can only run for one term, so he was never going to run for re-election anyway. But he sure hopes his own, he's representing the Democratic Party, and that's going to put a lot of pressure on the Democratic Party. The fact that for most of his uh, administration, he had pretty high approval ratings, but now his approval ratings are as low as they've ever been. Uh, I think it's going to be a highly contested presidential election next year. Mm. Well, Mitch, I really appreciate your time. Again, ladies and gentlemen, and Mitch Blend, join us all the way from South Korea. He's an international journalist, columnist, and a translator based in East Asia. Mitch, we really appreciate your time and your insights, and we hope that you can stay safe. And also, um, um, again, every day, um, please help us to be informed and give us more updates as soon as you can. Thank you, Mitch. Ah, uh, yeah, come on, boy. Uh, see ya, see ya.